This podcast is a member of WGPRN, wildgamesproductions.com. Warning, the following podcast contains mature language and some adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Podcast episode number four. I'm Crispy. I'm Tim, and I'm Daniel. And uh, let's get this show on the road. Indeed. You can. Let's uh, say this week we have a topic we have all uh, delved into a little bit. You kind of have to delve into it as well, a as a DM, or uh, even as a player, I guess, or any kind of like creative writing fantasy dude, which is uh, mm-hmm. world building. Indeed, yeah, we're gonna build some worlds. We're but not gonna build some worlds before we get to we're that. We've already it. built worlds. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Before we get to that, we uh, have a Facebook now, so you can find us yeah. on Facebook. Uh, Come book face with the Critical Wits Bros. Yeah, the Face Libra. Mm-hmm. You can uh, find us under Critical Wits Podcast. Just go ahead and type that in your search bar, and then we'll get a update thing that'll be like, hey, this person liked us. And as always, you can find us on our forums at osrgaming.org. Visit our website at criticalwits.info. Shoot us an email, criticalwits at gmail.com. At us on Twitter, at... Uh, mm-hmm. Criticalwits underscore PC. And, we uh, got another update in terms of how we sound. Definitely, yeah. If you uh, if you haven't noticed yet, we're coming through crystal clear and fantastic <laughs> thanks to uh, the Behringer Zenix 502 audio board with Phantom Crispy Power. got a new microphone. He gave me his old microphone. Yeah, so now we're, uh, we're sounding... I'm still waiting for mine. Pretty good. I, I'm not good season. enough for microphone. No, you sound well, fine. But yeah, and so that's no, fine, Dan. You sound you sound good. Yeah, 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 yeah guy. Like, <laughs> don't don't take yeah. it too like. Yeah, no, like yeah, don't don't listen to those other kids. That you're special. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You sound you're great. Special. You sound great. Yeah. Do you think he bought it? <laughs> I think so. Okay. I'll have, I'll have my new microphone set up before the next. Santo episode. is gonna bring you one. Yeah, so next episode we should be sounding like, whoa, and then yeah, we'll have like, feel the, like, whoa, they sound so great. Oh, man. I wish I could sound that great. And you I'm going to send the Critical sound. Wits guys all of my money for no reason. Yeah. That would be you. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. Yeah. So, uh, so contact us. I look us forward and, to your money. And send us all your money. <laughs> Unless you're a Nigerian prince, then we don't want any. Unless you're really a Nigerian prince. Yeah. Like, if you're actually a Nigerian prince. I feel prince. sorry for the real Nigerian princes who are all kidnapped and <laughs> sending out desperate emails, and everybody's like, oh, this again. Ugh. It's Nigerian prince. Just, that, this that, is like that the third actually... Nigerian prince who wants to give me his fortune this week. That would actually be, like, a, an awesome plot nowadays, is just to kidnap a Nigerian prince, because who's going to believe him? Yeah, <laughs> it's like some kind of farcical action movie. Send all the emails you want, Prince. No one will ever come to save you. 
Uh, all right, what were we talking about? World building? Uh, I think Nigerian princes, but yeah, we're supposed to be talking about world building. All right. So, like, yeah, you know, I, I've I've made a world. I've was, made worlds. It took me a while. It was like six days of work. On the seventh one, I just, I had to rest, you know? I've made a city. <sighs> <sighs> don't blaspheme me on my podcast, boy. <laughs> no, Ugh. I don't care about blasphemy. I just... <sighs> That was funny, yeah. and you know it. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. All right, so uh, world building, an integral part of the Dungeons & Dragons experience. You can't world build in anything else. You can't world build in Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> you can't. You can only world destroy and rob and yeah. kill their dragons. Like, man, Mario, what a jerk. Uh, so let's talk about the worlds that we have built Tim, I actually kind of want you to go first, because your world's a little more defined than mine is. Mine's, really? You think so? Yeah, mine's a little more mutable. Like, it keeps changing Dude, as I... Here's the secret. Mine is super mutable. Hmm. I think I think that's kind of the key to to world building is the is mutability. If you can't... I mean, like, my, my modern world, I have one city built. Um, and if you guys go, I mean, you guys know you went to Canada for God's sakes. We did go to Canada <laughs> briefly. Briefly, if, yeah. If 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 if, if it, um if a location exists outside of that, the, the those very small scope of what the game starts as, who knows what's out there? I mean, did, as a GM, I mean, I know some people are going to define every single part of their world out, but not everybody does. Yeah, I'm kind of yeah. along that line as well. I I like to play it kind of sandboxy. With my yes. world, I have some nouns I can drop in, like names of people and places, hmm. nations and stuff like that. But I don't really have to find where they all are. But there are different areas and important people. Hmm. And most of how I define the consistency of my world is in the cast of characters, like NPCs and such. I'll, I'll use the same people over and over again, and I'll use them between different sessions with different people. And I think that helps create a cohesive world. But in my world, it's it's mostly for Pathfinder games I run. And it's kind of unique in the fact that it's sort of fast and loose with the technology levels. There are knights, and people use swords mostly, but there are also robots. Yeah. <laughs> there are telephones. I've oh, cut many robots. of those robots in half. <laughs> yeah, like, basically, where I take the inspiration of my game world is from actually a video game, a game for the Sega Saturn called Guardian Heroes. Ah, you can also find it on the Xbox Live Arcade. Yeah, play it. It's great. <laughs> if you if have like, like games, if you have you like twelve Guardian to sixteen hundred Microsoft points, please go buy that game. It's fantastic. <laughs> you owe it to yourself to play it. Yeah. Like I, I learned a lot about storytelling from that game because it is so. It plays like a D and D campaign if it was an arcade game and not that other D and D arcade game. Which is also good. If you have an arcade cabinet and a Neo Geo, <laughs> or was that a CPS was that a CPS two? Yeah. If you have a CPS two and can find a cart, please go play Shadow Over Mistara. There, I've also heard some people might illegally download it, but Critical Wits does not condone the illegal downloading of old arcade games. Yes. So we, don't do it. We do not condone the Mame Thirty Two emulator. <laughs> no. Or the. Uh, <laughs> They, yeah, basically that's it. Yeah. So don't Google Mame Thirty Two, and also don't Google Shadow Over right. Mistara ROM. Yeah, that don't would do those be things. Bad. But yeah, the, basically the story behind Guardian Heroes is that you play as these adventurers who discover an ancient magic sword, like by accident. And depending on where the game goes, you can end up fighting a robot army, 
you can dethrone the wizard who currently rules over your nation and expose the false bloodline. You can go fight against demons. You can go fight against angels. It's very open-ended. And what I like is sort of the ambiguous level of technology that's in there. Yeah, they have robots, but you... also magicians and, like, ninjas. Yeah, and, like, everything that's neat or cool is just sort of thrown in there. And like... you don't question it at all. Like, you've got these, like, robot uh, golems that, like, have hover powers, but you're fighting on, like, a cobblestone street inside a village. With a sword. With a sword, yeah. Yeah. And, like, Chris, you can attest to this, and, like, in one of the games I run with him and some of our friends... Uh, he plays a detective named Rutgers Grimm, who has an office on, like, a London-style cobblestone street. He, he goes down to a tavern to interrogate somebody. There's a jukebox. And then the guy he interrogates pulls out a couple of short swords. And, and wrecked down. my shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I, I like the idea of that, like, a world where it's sort of modern-level technology. But the idea is that people who use swords and bows and stuff are stronger than people who rely on guns and things like that. Yeah. So if you fight, you have a sword or, or magic. Yeah, like Rutgers Grimm himself is like an expert boxer and fencer. And through the course of our last adventure, actually, and I'm really looking forward to... Oh, man, Paul mm -hmm. is coming home in two weeks. Oh, man, I have to prepare yeah, for Yeah, we the, have to play Rutgers a Rutgers Grimm, Grimm game, game since we didn't get to play last time. Or did we? Yeah. I don't know. Anyways, yeah. So uh, through the course of our last adventure, we found this ancient magical artifact, like like it's a, like a gauntlet, uh, and Rutgers Grimm put it on, and now he has a Mega Buster. And I don't question that. Like me having like a secretary who answers my telephones and like electric lamps in my fantasy cobblestone city, or my arch nemesis is like a fighter magic user, and my like arch nemesis uh, rival who is super below me is a necromancer. <laughs> I don't question those things at all. Like it all just just fits together so well. And, and I don't try to make it cohesive like, uh, say, Eberron does, where, like, oh, there are lamps, but they're powered by fire elementals. And it's like they basically take the idea of a magical society and extrapolate it logically. I didn't extrapolate it logically. I just kind of took that sort of... I just made this sort of hodgepodge setting of anything that's sort of vaguely old-timey, but having those modern elements and even sci-fi elements. Yeah, it, it really works. Uh, we fought Drow, who had an airship. Oh, man. Ah, I know it's getting into story time, and I can't wait till we do that episode. <laughs> but Die Hard. Die Hard. <laughs> I talked about this on Thaco's Hammer. There was an episode that Tim ran for uh, me and Joe, where we basically were playing fantasy Die Hard against Drow Hans Gruber. And it's oh one God, of the best sessions this. I've ever played. Yeah, and I think there's actually something to be said about that. Drow in my games are not like Drow in other games. And I think putting a spin on the traditional fantasy kind of tropes is a huge part of world building. Which leads me into my world, because I am all about that. Uh, my world that I have been using now started out very different from what it's kind of become, and I think actually for the Swords and Wizardry, I'm going back to that. It was uh, this jungle like continent, and like it had, uh, you know, there was uh, there's the two towns that they started off in were uh, Bloodpool and Fillmore, and anyone from like our generation who had a Super Nintendo will recognize <laughs> those names from the game Actraiser, which are the first two towns. It's this like really great fantasy simulator. And Fillmore was kind of like this, like, weird London town thing, and, like, it was very Victorian, but also super fantasy. But it took place in a, like, it was, what if London 
was landlocked and in the middle of like Brazil, <laughs> but it's still London. Mm -hmm. And so there were like dangers of like, you can't go too far into the jungle because like that's where terrible things happen and you'll meet dire like, tiger will like dire tiger, dire tiger that you'll shoot with a ray of enfeeblement <laughs> and get a critical hit on and then it will lose all strength and be able to support, be unable to support the weight of its own body. <laughs> um, and like there was no magic in the world, but so... Uh, well, there was, like, a very low level of magic. And so, like, new things had popped up. Like, uh, it was kind of Victorian, almost. They had, like, steam engines. And uh, things were powered by gas lamps. And instead of, like, cure light wounds potions or, like, potions of healing or anything like that, they had come up with chemical compounds that did the same thing. So, like... When you, when you found a potion, and this is something that I want to bring back because I think it's really interesting. It's actually like a hypodermic syringe that you injected yeah, yourself with. It was a combination, I believe we came, we, oh, we came down to, it was a combination of Red Bull and Vicodin. <laughs> it's a painkiller and a stimulant. Yeah, which I yeah, think is a good substitute for Cure Light Wounds. And then yep. I've talked about like uh, fantasy races on other shows, but my dwarves and elves, and I've mentioned that I think in the first episode, are very, very different from dwarves and elves in the standard D&D &D campaign. Like, you have your elves, and elves and dwarves don't like each other because their lifestyles are so different. I had spun that, like, there was an ancient war, and elves were actually nature's, like, uh, response to the giants of that world, going and kind of, like, being all Saruman, uh, and deforesting and building, like, war machines and stuff like that. So the, uh, elves came about from the forest spirits, creating these perfect, like, living weapons to kind of combat the giants, and the giants were just, like, getting decimated. So they, in response created dwarves which were these like perfect shock troops that over time they started off as like really skinny kind of little mini giants and they put beards on them because like it was fashionable for giants to have beards so like <laughs> as an ornamentation as like a hood ornament they put beards on these dwarves and like and... as time went on they got uh more and more uh bulky to be able to withstand like fireballs and more magic resistance and stuff like that and so through a logical progression of warfare that's how dwarves became who they are and i think that's really interesting yeah really interesting. daniel if you have you've put a spin on a typical fantasy race before haven't you not that i remember are you I'm pretty sure you have. Are you trying to? Are you trying to prod me towards uh, memory, remembering something, or? Uh, yes. Which one? Uh, I think you do a lot with elves in your worlds. I do a lot with elves, but they're not like a unique spin on them. I mean, my elves are 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 pretty much like high magic users. They're all well. I wouldn't say all high magic users. I mean, but they are. They're they're they're, they're the trying to think of how to put it. Like the traditional uh, fantasy elves, they're the woodsmen and they're high high magi. Okay. And that's what I really do with mine is that they're both. I mean, they yeah. still have the, the society that's in tune with nature, and they are still like the trackers and rangers. But then the ones who focus on magic are the high magi of the land. Yeah, and I in my games, elves are like that too. Like you don't have to change these kinds of things. Yeah, for world building. And what what I did different is drow in like. The core D and D drow are like these evil scheming race of corrupted elves who, who like worship, worship this spiders. madness deity, and they're always just trying to backstab each other and such. I actually kind of had a different focus, where in my world, elves are very nature oriented, and drow are elves that turned away from nature in favor of mad science and technology. So they live underground because something transformed their physiology, which probably was their own fault, and they became these sort of twisted, strange race of mad scientists, and every once in a while, they just stage an affront on the surface world with their strange inventions. 
Like, sometimes it's these robots, sometimes it's an airship. Like, last time, it was an airship. And, and robots. You know, and robots. Yeah, but the time before yeah. that, it was like, uh, it was just robots. And, and walkie-talkies. Yeah, they actually got walkie-talkies from fighting these drow. And, like, I love that. That was great. Um, yeah. I think there is a lot to be said about taking these uh, standard tropes and reworking them to, like, not changing them, but reflavoring how they happen. Like, my dwarves are essentially the same dwarves that you've been dealing with forever. Like, they're magic resistance, they're short, they're stocky, they have beards, they love to drink, uh, they can't be poisoned very easily. But all of that came through, like, a logical progression of, like, these were foot soldier robots that essentially gain sentience over time. Mm-hmm. So, like, another reason, another thing that I did is there are no female dwarves, because, like, you know, they were mass-produced in, like, assembly lines by the giants, and so... And we're back to female dwarves. No, <laughs> I'm just saying, like, they're all actually, like, they self-identify as male, because they have, like, beards and stuff like that. But, but they're basically they, genderless. They're genderless, yeah, they don't have, they're like Ken dolls down there, you know? <laughs> and, like, uh, so, you know, like... I don't have to worry about female dwarves having beards or not in my world, and it, it works out for me pretty well. <laughs> um, yeah, but, like, they're resistant to poison because, like, the elves were, were poisoning the, the giant shock troop forces. They're resistant to magic because, and they're, like, super heavy and stuff like that because, you know, they were getting fireballed by the score. Mm-hmm. Just stuff like that, you know? And yeah. the mechanically, the dwarves are not any different from, like, standard dwarves. It's just fluff-wise... They have a lot more, a lot more of a logical reasoning for why they're like this. And you don't necessarily have to be super unique when you make your own world. Like you can just take everything that's in the core rule setting and just make your own cities and nations and such. Mm-hmm. And that's perfectly fine too. And there's an advantage in that because that's the kind of world that people are familiar with. You won't have to sit down with your players and explain why they can't be a Robin Hood type elf because elves don't give a shit about humans. Yeah, like, like I kind of put myself in a corner with that kind of stuff. But I, I, for my own purposes, for the the verisimilitude of my world, I, I like being like, no, you can't be that kind of guy because that, that doesn't really exist. Like elves in my land, you guys play pretty standard elves. Mine are these like super grim, dark guerrilla warfare fighting elves who live forever. Feral. They're, They're feral, feral, yeah. And so, like, a uh, ha-ha, have-at-ye kind of elf would just not fit the world at all. <laughs> but I, I still feel like there's a lot of wiggle room, because you, you can have, like, your, your elf, and, and it, it kind of forces you to play as an elf instead of a human with pointy ears, which I think is important. Yeah. And, and go, going back, um, the, the elves I use versus the humans I use in my world, the humans are actually uh, more more feral, more caveman-esque in my world. I won't say that they're like really far behind, but they are technologically behind the times. I, I, I play a lot of uh, elven-centric, like my worlds are usually elven-centric, but they're that's because they're the, the height of society. They're the ones who are, you know, who actually run these big cities, whereas humans run more like tribal villages. Closer. That's interesting. That is atypical. Yeah. Because see, normally elves just sort of live in the forest and don't expand. And humans are the ones who build these great cities. Yeah. Like, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. Like, the hu- the elves have, like, they're super, super aloof and don't really move from where they're already established lands are whereas humans have like partnered with dwarves and and gnomes even though i i don't have pc race gnomes because i don't i don't think they're any different from halfling and dwarves or not different enough but they've built these rail systems and like this technology to kind of replace magic 
So the the humans and the dwarves in in that world, as per kind of a typical fantasy setting, are a lot more technologically advanced than the elves. Hmm. So that's a lot but, about uh, races and world building. What about technology levels? Like we we kind of went with that a little bit. Like, do you guys keep it to standard like swords and guisarmes and ranciers and Beck de Corbins and uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, what are some other obscure pole arms? Pardish. <laughs> Pardish. It's a Pardish. <laughs> Bill Guisarme. Par- Partisan. Partisan, yeah. Um, f- I want to say Flamberge is a sword, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. There is something I want to say about technology levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, people in typical D&D games that are otherwise very medieval-themed have a lot more hygiene, I've noticed. Like, yeah. You don't spend a lot of time discussing how your armor is like horribly filthy. Or that kind of thing. Or how people get sick from dysentery just from eating their food and yeah. they only live to be 40. Like, that's not the kind of medieval setting that appeals to most people. Yeah, so it kind of gets swept under the rug. Um, well, there, there's actually a logical explanation to that in, in that, um, like, if you look, you're looking at a human medieval world versus a fantasy medieval world, human, the actual, uh, or the real world in medieval times didn't have magic. Yeah. So where where things like prestidigitation are are commonplace, I mean, I've I've seen I've seen people come up with like a, a, essentially a piece of soap that's a magic item that can cast prestidigitation. <laughs> so you just use prestidigitation to clean yourself every day with this soap, or or you know, um, purifying food. That's a spell. You know, having pure food, having pure water, clean water to avoid sickness, to avoid uh, um, just dying of dysentery at random. That's something that that exists in the in a fantasy world. Yeah, but they also have to factor in the availability of magic for the common person as a factor in this world. Yeah. Because Joe Commoner, like, is this a world where uh, he can afford a bit of magic soap that'll clean him perfectly forever? Probably not. Yeah. And it's funny that you guys bring that up, because in my no magic, or virtually no magic world, I had instigated that they had had developed indoor plumbing. So, like, they didn't have these things to, uh, to, like, press the digitation away the filth. They didn't have, like... Mordenkainen's OxyClean. (laughs) (laughs) But they did have indoor plumbing, and, like, that was a central plot point in, like, the second adventure, because, like, that brought about the Odiug. Oh. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I remember that. And then, like, I I don't know, I feel like if you have indoor plumbing, like, wash your goddamn hands, you filthy son of a bitch. (laughs) Yeah. So no one died from dysentery, because, like, I, I had kind of subconsciously subverted that. It wasn't It wasn't anything that I did on purpose. I will admit to that right now. <laughs> yeah. I was just saying that with, with the prevalence of magic, even, uh, yeah, uh, you know, Joe Commoner level one isn't going to have access to a bunch of magic. There's still the magic in the world that helps, that would help to provide, um, you know, a clean living environment. Hmm. Like, I can see your point, but, like, I could also... I, I, I can disagree because, like, I like personally to play magic as being rare, even if it's just a standard D&D setting. No. Like, I like my wizards to be like Conan the Barbarian wizards. And and that and that's and that's where we've differed in the past. Yeah. Like, uh, you, you, I mean, I don't know you guys like having the, you know, for, at first level, you're essentially a superhero if you're an adventuring class. And I, I, I really prefer to, to space things out more evenly across the levels. Well, Mm. like, that's the thing. It it depends on the game, too. Because, like, Pathfinder, at first level, if you're a sorcerer, and Tim and I have talked about this, you're a goddamn X-Man. You can cast a globe of acid an infinite number of times per day once every six seconds to, like, melt a dude's face off. 
Yeah, you're an X-Man at that point. Yeah, like, so you're like, uh, you are in the rules under the assumption of a normal fantasy, like, a normal world. You, you are super-powered. And see, and again, like, like I said, that's that's where again you, we differ is because whereas I see the world as with this kind of stuff, it, that that's not that's not like an X Men type thing. That's your that could be your average um, like college student or guy guy just out of magic school is it would be considered a first level sorcerer. Yeah. So like I and I, I I do see that, but like I think where we do differ, and I think this is the point you're trying to get is you have like exponentially more college students than we do. <laughs> I think the uh, idea is that the level demographics are different in your two different kinds of campaigns. Mm-hmm. In the crispy type game, if you're a level one fighter, you are exceptional. By the time you get to level three, you're like this hardened veteran. In Daniel's game, like level five is considered basic professional competency. And so not- you have a world that's populated with more like experienced high level people, which is also a consideration in world building. Like, is the king like level 16 or is he just a regular level one guy yeah and i will say that like daniel i know you have a grounded background uh with running forgotten realms and that is like like i personally don't like forgotten realms because of that kind of thing and like i was i was uh, actually watching a review of a forgotten realms product and somebody had brought up that same exact point and i'm like oh hey is, yeah. is that uh, to, to be completely honest i mean i really don't have much uh of a background with it what what you're referring to the um the Faerun Taverns yeah, you're uh, campaign running that we ran Faerun for like 5 years I, I did about as much research as i needed to to run that um i didn't really delve into the backstory or anything like that i didn't get into the most of the the npcs that were written by wizards of the coast me and the rest of the eight gms that we had during that game we kind of flew by the seat of our pants at that point yeah but that's a i don't know it's it's a very forgotten realms thing like the, that's how the world is kind of presented is that there are these really grand like magic is is it's pretty commonplace and also it's it's big which is something like i personally don't like about forgotten realms but that's me yeah, no, I, I I like that if if the if the since the game at least three point five has twenty levels to its to its basic, that the entire world can use all twenty levels. That that the twentieth level person isn't you know like a one in you know only there's only one twentieth level person on the planet. I won't say that like by twentieth level is commonplace in my world. No, most of the mo- most of the people you're going to run into are going to be between levels uh, three and seven. Yeah, that's interesting because in uh, the first edition, the the basic set only had a few levels, and then you had the the expert set and such. So you didn't have levels one twenty in the game. They were adding the later levels afterwards. Yeah, and like oh. uh, in in first edition, like if you were a level sixteen like druid, you had to kill the like previous level sixteen druid, and and then when like you were the only level sixteen druid either in the world or in that area, depending on your GM. Huh. Yeah. And I think the the 3.5 Dungeon Master's Guide actually gives guidelines for the spread of levels you can find in, like, a settlement of a certain size. Yeah. I don't know what they are or what page they're on, but it did, I think, have the impression that higher-level characters were much rarer. And yeah. there is a thing. By the system in uh, Pathfinder, uh, level 5 is pretty tough. Like, we, uh, me and Crispy ran the numbers once, and uh, I think, under the assumption you said once that... A soldier in an army, like a rank-and-file soldier, would be a level 5 fighter. Mm -hmm. Um, We calculated it out, and you would only need an extremely small unit of these fighters to take down an ancient red dragon. Yeah, it was not a huge number of of guys. Not for an army. 
It was like less than a thousand people. I think it was less than five hundred. It was a very small number. Yeah, but but then you're looking at the your average ancient red dragon is a good deal smarter than the grand the grand majority of any of those people. Well, yeah, but I mean, just by the number standpoint of uh, the challenge levels, which I think the intelligence is taken into account there. It's not a perfect system, but it's not. But like I said, I I do prefer to use the entire level spread as opposed to just a very very small part of it as like yeah yeah rank and file your 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 basic uh not competency but your average skill set for a, a professional person in my world is about yeah round level five by yeah. about level 10 you are superior you're like you know you are the elite of your well i'd, I'd say you know your, your generals your um a good chunk of your um like your teachers are going to be around level 10. Level yeah. 15 would be closer to the elite, the people who are like, say, Stephen Hawking. But And then you're looking, level 20, if you get to level 20, you are, you know, the top of, that. level 20 would be like your Stephen Hawking types. We did start at level 1 in that game, though, so that probably colored our perceptions a bit. A little bit, that, yeah. I will, I will definitely you guys, say. You guys, I mean, that, that that's that's for when, when, uh, when games go sour, but you guys did kind of, I don't think I properly explained to you guys how everything was working. Yeah, and I will yeah. say, like, that kind of does fall in line with, like, old school a little bit. Because, like, level 9, you're a goddamn, you're a duke. You're, yeah, yeah you get that's, improved yeah. duke. You get improved duke at level improved 9. Improved duke. <laughs> yeah, and that's not, like, level 9, I'm a general. That's, like, level 9, I have my own goddamn castle. <laughs> that's, like, level 9, I have my own generals. Yeah, so. Yeah. yeah and so. the demographics did change. Definitely, yeah. There is definitely something to be said for old school versus new school with this but it does i think there is variance from campaign setting to campaign setting mm-hmm. when you build your world it is a consideration of how many high level people are there and yeah. like the the general power level of the world will affect how it's played and how it develops yeah exactly like mtm your your campaign is e6 so the highest level you're ever going to achieve is six well, it actually is not E6 anymore, but no, well, the demographics are the same, in which case, like, level 6 is, like... Big damn heroes. Yeah, big damn heroes. Yeah. But I'm gonna say, like, an archmage who runs a magic school would be, like, level 12. Okay, yeah, see, yeah. so, yeah, the, the, that's just the, that's just a differing, you know, a, just differing world sets there. Yeah, and I, I will say for my own campaign purposes, like, I don't like to put levels on NPCs. Because I feel like, yeah, sure, it's empowering, but it's also limiting. Like, I like to just let the NPCs do what I need them to do. Like, uh, Archie, Xander, and Jared, they were, like, the big damn heroes from, like, the generation before. And, like, they were epic level, quote-unquote. But uh, I never really put a super-defined level limit on them. Yeah. To, to be fair, though, we, we never had to, you know, you didn't never needed that stat block. We never came into contention with them. We never needed to know, you know. Yeah. Well, we all knew fighting them was a bad yeah, idea. Yeah, and, and that's Would that's the idea. that's why I did it, was just like, these guys don't have a level, but if you try to fight them, you are going to be destroyed. Yeah. But they also, we can't just be all like, hey, you gotta help us. Yeah, because, because they had their own they stuff they had all their on. own things to take care of. One of them was like the, world. the Archmage. The other one was like the friggin' Amma de friggin' Pope. And then the next <laughs> one was was the king. Yeah. yeah. He was, he, you couldn't be like, hey, can you come slay this dragon for us? He's like, no, I'm too busy running this country. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, guys. I have, like, tax levies to impose. 
So, like, I, I think there is something to be said for when you're defining your world, you really want to kind of carefully gauge the power level. Like, for me, if you're a first level fighter, you're like, you're pretty badass. You're not like the most badass. You're not action movie guy, but like, you know, you're, you're probably, you've got some training. You're like maybe a police dude. Yeah. And then, uh, when you get up to like level six, like, you're, you're goddamn Navy SEAL Chris Kyle. You have 160 <laughs> confirmed sniper kills. <laughs> and, there's actually something I want to ask. It's not related to the level demographics, mm-hmm. but uh, what do you guys think about geography when you build your world? Uh, I always like uh, left-facing one. <laughs> Whatever that trope <laughs> that is. the configuration of the map. I mean, how important do you guys think it is to, A, have uh, a distinct map of some kind, even a vague one, and have all the different regions of the world be in relation to each other, or B, to have the world be geologically accurate in terms of, like, there's a mountain that blocks the rainfall, so this is a desert, or you can't have a tundra and a jungle next to each other kind of thing. Um, hmm. I've never really put that much thought into it, to be honest. Uh, but again, yeah. like like I was saying earlier, my world is really, really mutable. If, an, if a location exists outside of the scope of what I'm looking at right now, it could be anything. Yeah. It's three mi- three miles, you know, west. There could be a desert, even if you're in a jungle. I don't know. I haven't, th- I haven't, you know, needed to send you guys there, so I really haven't made that exist yet. See, and I'm on now, the opposite end of Daniel because, like, I think having a map because I like to run sandbox. Uh, I, well, it's not that I like to run sandbox. It's just I hate preparing. Is, yeah. As you guys are well aware, I hate preparing. So I like to have a map where, like, okay, here's a this thing, here's a this thing. And so, like, it's not where I send you guys. I like it to be where you guys go. Yeah, we actually came up with a system one time where we had a map, and we just put a bunch of dots on it. Yeah. And for and... each dot, we decided something interesting that was there. Mm-hmm. So, like, here, there's a mountain passage, and the only way through is guarded by crazy monsters that can walk sideways on walls. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, and if you decide to go that way, you're going to come across that. Like, I like to have, like, a map, and then I'll put dots, and as I need to fill those dots, like, as you guys go in that direction, like, oh, what do they come across? Oh, here's a dot. They come across this thing. It's the town of uh, Rodrickson. See, I think I think there you and I are closer than than you seem to think because I, it's not. I do keep a record of what you guys, what what my party has come across in these certain areas. So you go backwards, it's it's gonna it's all gonna be the same. Yeah, and but like that's, if that's... you need if you're if you're gonna be heading west, or if you guys like you guys were researching in my game like uh, certain items and they were in two different tombs. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I okay, now these tombs have formed into existence and the roads to them have formed into existence. Now those exist. Yeah. I think it is actually super important to instead of build your world all ahead of time and try to force your players to look at what you think is interesting, is to lay a really basic framework and whatever your players latch onto is to develop that after the fact. Yeah, I have come around to that. And sometimes in between sessions when you know that's what they're investigating. Yeah, I've really come around to that thought train as well. That's what what I was trying to come across, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, uh, especially for your rogues gallery for your campaign world. Like, I yeah, had, like, like, a villain that I wanted to be the villain, but you guys did not, like, you, Chris and Emily, did not latch onto those dudes, or that dude. Like, you yeah. latched onto, like, the weird, I just ran a session off the top of my head, I'm gonna roll a <laughs> random encounter from the DMG, okay, here we go. And, like, yeah. that's what you latched onto, and then I brought it back, and that was, like, as Tim will say, that was really the true villain mm-hmm. of the campaign. Like, yeah. the lich that I forced you guys to, I, I won't say forced, I tricked you guys into making was yeah. not the big bad, as I had intended. Yeah, because we didn't really connect with him. 
Yeah. It's like, oh, evil bad guy Lich, we sort of accidentally helped him gain power. And it was more of a sense of responsibility than any kind of personal grudge. Yeah, whereas you had a personal grudge against the sorcerers. Well, they had a personal grudge against you, and then you had a personal grudge against them. Yeah, and like, I, we gave them the chance to walk away from this whole thing before it ended in death, and they didn't take it. Mm-hmm. And it was a super climactic session. Yeah, and it was a good session. It's one of the best sessions. So, yeah, I, so I think having a world, uh, a rogues gallery in the world, people who are influential or significant who are powerful, like substantially powerful, is pretty important as well. Oh, definitely. Yeah, like, because the world and the society are shaped by these people with these ambitions. Mm -hmm. So you have to define who they are because their personality is going to determine how the world is developed. Like, if you have a really warlike state, it's probably because it has this warrior king. Yeah, and even if the and even if the characters never come across these people, the the influence can still they can still feel their influence. Exactly, you get some background like world building. You get you get to change the world still, even if the players don't interact with like this guy. You still get to change the world as per his design. So it's it's kind of a nice thing as a DM that you get to keep playing even when you're not playing. Yeah. Which is yeah. interesting. Like, I, I think it's cool. And I also think, with the Rogues Gallery thing you said, I don't know if it's necessarily important for every game, but I think it is an example of developing the game to suit what your players have been interested in. Mm -hmm. Because in my game, the reason I have such a quote-unquote Rogues Gallery of villains is because you guys have really liked the villains. Yeah, that and, and that's something to be said. Like, uh, if, if you have a villain and the players kind of seem like they're latching onto it, and they defeat him, even if they bring him down to zero hit points. If you know that says like, oh, he's dead. Don't mm -hmm. don't have him die. Have him escape. Or you can have him die and have other people who are related to him, like you did. Yeah, like that's another thing. Like that like, influence doesn't have to be or his minions taken or... away. And of course, Our resurrection allies. is a thing. Maybe this villain who you defeated was like the right hand man of an evil king of another land. Now he's interested in your country. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, and like that can be a way to tie in the player's actions with the world too. Yeah, I definitely think that the world should be, if you're building a world, it should be mutable. Your players need to have an influence on it. And part of that is, uh, why I say that is because my world itself, the campaign that we're going to be starting for the AP podcast, was changed by Tim and Daniel and Joe and Drew. It was changed significantly. They brought magic back to it. So, yeah. like, you know, now there's some history stuff, and that history is the last group of people who played in the world. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, like, you don't even have to write anything for this, like, period of time. They wrote it for you. <laughs> uh, there is a thing, I guess, I kind of have to spoil it, Tim. And I feel really bad about this. You don't like, have wait, to. Wait, hold on. What are you spoiling? I'm spoiling you something. don't have to. A, a little tiny Easter egg I was going to put in the campaign. Okay. You really don't have to. I, I, I do to an extent. Tim. What? Uh, you know, as the world, before you, you had, like, these deities that were kind of abstract concepts that were manifested. That's that's the gods of of that campaign world, and it was yeah. just kind of like a I I hate I hate doing religion stuff in D and D because I'm no good at it, and we'll talk about that in a in a couple seconds. But so you know you had like coyote and like uh uh moon goddess and stuff like that. Yeah. As the world has gone on, and it's had a couple like catastrophes that have mm -hmm. befallen it. Uh, the old gods have sort of been forgotten. Mm -hmm. The world has gone uh, to a paradigm of hero worship. So your last adventuring group uh -huh. are gods. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So you have uh, Neom the Martyr. You have, uh, I can't remember what Alex, Alex the Prophet, actually. Huh. Yeah. 
And there's a cool thing with Alex being the prophet that like I won't spoil. Medwin uh Medwin is is the Archon. He's Medwin the Archon. And then you have uh I don't remember what Celestia was, but yeah, so like What about Alistair? Alistair is the dragon. <laughs> like that's what he's called. He's Alistair the Dragon. But yeah, so you have like you you still have your concept gods mm-hmm. who are like, you know, personified. And I'm gonna work on that a bit, give them a more cohesive naming structure. Uh but Hero worship. You're basically like uh, minor minor saints or something like that. Yeah. But people will worship you. And we can bring in stuff like, by Alex's quill. Yeah, exactly. Uh, her book yeah. is an artifact. By the great blade yeah. of Medwin. Tim, you, you, now now do you see why I was why I was making a big deal about about my uh, about um guy whose name I can't remember my characters uh, being descended of Medwin and Neem? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that, yeah. That, because basically the scion of gods. Yeah, he 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 can trace his lineage back to them. That's why he, it's such a big deal for him to prove himself. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. He, even so, though he even though he is also a descendant of Miles, then is therefore a bit thick. <laughs> like you so guys saved the world. A really and, good world building concept of taking what the players have done and working it into the world. Because if you want to get your players interested in the world, letting them contribute to it in this kind of way is huge. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and that like, that's if something- you. If you want to be interested in a world, the players have to have a stake in it, which I've I've ran games that have failed because I already sort of laid them out and they were not that mutable. And the players basically were not the stars of the story here and they didn't feel like they could have any sort of effect on what happened. Yeah, and that's something I kind of like thankfully absolute uh, accidentally stumbled upon. <laughs> yeah, so there's definitely that aspect when you build your world, be prepared to change it. Mm-hmm. depending on what your players do in ways that you might not expect or maybe even not even like that much. Yeah. One thing that I personally like to do is let them have input on the world. Like, mm-hmm. say, like, they heard of a town to the west that you haven't filled in. Like, okay, mm-hmm. well, that town's there now. Or if they're related to someone that you mm-hmm. didn't want them to be related to, either, like, familial... Fam- uh, by, like, blood relation. Or through, mm-hmm. like, some kind of shared history. Yeah. Like, or, I, like, I, if I love you hear, it. like, uh... So, I heard the black bow at another victim <laughs> this time. Oh, and then the they, your character can be like, the black bow. The black bow is responsible for my entire village losing their worth and their prosperity. Yeah. He took our parents. great shipment of uh, textiles that we were sending off to the capital city. It was supposed to bring revenue and revitalize our dying town. The black bow stole it. And the player could be making this up. And the DM could say, yeah, that happened. And yeah, I, I had I had introduced the black bow into my backstory with from prodding uh, from the, the rest of you guys just because when I introduced uh, an Austriana that she her parents had been killed in that area. So oh yeah yeah I forgot that the black bow did that. Oh yeah. I was I just pulled the name the black bow out of nowhere. I wasn't talking about anything specific. The black bow is Galtrel Swiftbow Hero Fourth yeah. Edition's old alternate <laughs> identity. Yeah, but, but yeah. yeah. Letting... The, the idea is that it's good to let the players contribute by, like, on the fly, being like, oh, I know about a CD bar we can go to. My friend owns it. Yeah. Something like that. And, like, the DM can be like, okay. I think it's also important to let uh, things that the players put in their backstory be a part of the world. Like Alex's dad's tavern. Yeah, that Lens. was kind of our home base for a while. Yeah, it was. And so I was just like, my my character's father owns a tavern, and like the adventuring party that uh, his wife was in are like close family friends now, mm-hmm. and, and that became really important in the campaign, and it and then eventually part of the world because the adventuring party were high level now, and they became those sort of influential figures we talked about. Yeah, or even with the town of Rogerston, like I will say that keeping your town or keeping your map mutable and like having places where 
you know, you don't know where they're going to go, but they might. Like, just a little tiny dot on the map that might be a landmark. Like, I I had a lot of development through that system with uh, you guys stopping at the town of Rogerston and making that your home base. You just kind of latched onto it. I don't remember Rogerston very much. It's in you the other campaign. That oh, that'd be why. Yeah. <laughs> you say you guys. Uh, I'm assuming you're talking about us. Oh, sorry. It was a coastal fishing town where our characters stopped by and the Lord wanted to meet us because we were exotic adventurers and stuff. We ran out on our way and on our way back we went to the town again and the, his daughter was having a wedding that we were invited to and it was crashed. But we saved their daughter which he wanted to give us a reward and then what we asked for was a house so we could live there. Mm -hmm. And that's that town became a lot more important. Like I had planned on them to like keep moving kind of like how you guys did with the Alex Medwin game and yeah. that, that didn't happen. They, they remained stationary. And you did not see that coming at all, did you? I did not see that coming. And that's like, part of what's important about world building is you have to account for the things that you don't see coming. Not to prep for them, but like you, you have to be open to letting it be mutable. Well, in the in the vein of uh, creating your world around what the players do, what about Joe's game? Hmm. Joe's game? Which which Joe's game? Joe, the the one where uh, we were literally the town. characters were on the caravan to literally build a town. That was a good. Yeah, game. I miss that game. Mary and and get to the world building aspect of that we kind of i mean the stuff had i mean the construction had started we was still more you know setting up the the baseline but we but still through our actions uh through mine in particular actually we ended up like settling two or we're about to settle two areas so that we'd have a docks as well i mean we, we, we were having a big impact on that on that uh, world just because we that was our role in the game that was pretty clearly defined at the at the start which I'm sad that campaign ended before the point where we could really start uh, establishing the town and like determining the direction it developed. Yeah, me too. That was that was, that really was a fun game. Yeah. It was. I, and I uh, character. my well, character from that game sort of. is now in the Gale Company. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. That destiny not realized. Join this mercenary group. Yeah. That that whole like aspect of having the players actually develop the world in some way is. That's a campaign in itself. Yeah. Like, you can start them in, like, this plot of land. It's another thing that I think old-school D&D does well with, like, your characters getting uh, land as part of their, you know, class progression. Yeah, so you sort of have to build the world. Yeah. You like have you... to have some reason, like, why you had this castle. Yeah, and, and it also... players like, oh, level 9, you get a castle. Hey, cool, we can drop this on that lich. And then get all his treasure. <laughs> yeah, you actually have to build it. And, like, part of that is you have to go to the land, like, the surrounding lands of where you want your castle. And then you have to clear it out of monsters to make it safe so people will come live where you're putting your castle. So, yeah, I mean... the adventure is just built right into your class progression. Yeah. Like, you, you can you can scope out lands while you're, while you're adventuring. Like, like, say, like, at level four, you enter like a valley or something like that and you like you're you're up on a cliff looking down into it and you're like oh man that would be a great place to put a defensible castle like uh and then as you like get to level eight you're like you know i think i think it's time to start winding down i've got my plus three sword i've got mm. my ancient artifact of evil that slowly uh intangibly corrupts my soul every time <laughs> i use it unbeknownst to me i've got my boots that let me like walk on water i think it's time for me to go and and maybe retire or uh, start getting some money without having to go into these dank old musty tombs. And then you go back to that valley and then it's like, oh man, I didn't realize that this valley, I had forgotten that it's it's swarming with orcs and bar guests. And so now the adventure is like, I have to kill all these bar guests and orcs. And then if that campaign finishes and you start another group 
in that same world, that castle will probably still yeah. be there. Now you've got you've got uh, uh, like Thorin Bobson, son of Bob the Fighter, who's the <laughs> the Baron of this land, and, and he's like, the son this of place your used player. To be overrun by orcs until uh, the king of this land cleared it out like by himself and his friends, and he built a castle there. Yeah, and, and maybe the like, orcs have moved back world, in, and that's something that actually happened. Yeah, that's something that you your group did to affect the world. I think there's a lot to be said. I wanted to talk about something that I had forgotten about. I said we were going to address it in a couple seconds and I never got to. What uh, was that? What was it? Um, I don't remember. I don't remember either. Aww. Oh, well. It, it sucks it's... that this is recorded, so we're going to go back and, and like, we're uh... going to hear exactly what it was when it's too late. Oh, well. <laughs> I guess we can do it for a follow-up. That's fine. Deities. That's what it was. Deities, oh, yeah. yes. I hate making gods in d and I'm just going to say that right now. I'm terrible at it. It's the worst. How about you guys? In my campaign, I actually, for deities, I don't spend a lot of time on them. I kind of adapt, basically, characters from the video games made by my favorite game company, Treasure, and I make them gods. It's just what I do. And uh, in my game, Har is uh, the god of magic and study. He's actually adapted from a character in a video game called Silhouette Mirage, where he's one of the villains. But uh, in my game, he's the god of uh, study and magic, and my brother's a priest of him. And there's that's actually come up a few times. In one adventure, um, a sky spirit from the court of Har actually came down to Earth and was going to try and take it over. So Har sent an avatar of himself to enlist my brother's character to stop him. And I actually got to come up with some really cool world-building concepts with that. One of the concepts was that uh, a spirit creature or a god taking human form, their name has to include their true name. So uh, Har came down as an avatar named Tharsis because the, the villain, his, uh, his true name was Zer. So his, uh, his fake name was Azuriel. So there's actually that clue in there where I, I kind of noted that the priest knows that that's a rule where spirits have to take that kind of name. And Crispy's character actually figured it out before he did. did I don't remember how I did that. I will say yeah, that... Wrecker's Grim. You actually, uh, after finding out that that rule existed for spirits who take human form, you just sort of snapped and you're all like, Tharsis, your patron. His name contains the word Har. That's your god. Yeah, and, like, that session was really good because, like, Rutgers Grimm is an atheist in a fantasy <laughs> world as a joke. <laughs> like, anytime anyone casts a spell, which, man, you know, magic is real, magic is a big thing, he just kind of plays it off as superstitious mumbo-jumbo. And then he <laughs> met the god of magic. So, like, uh, after we had defeated Zer and, like, Harad rewarded us, like, he's just, like, smoking his pipe and, uh, he's got all this money that that Har gave him, and he's like, praise be to Har. <laughs> from then on, now he uh, actually believes set. in gods. I love Rutgers Grimm. He's like, he's basically my magnum opus to D&D characters. <laughs> but yeah, like, uh, Har and, uh, and Zer, that was a really memorable session, too, and it kind of gave Paul vindication that, like, wow, gods really, really do exist, and they will interact with us. Just something yeah. I, I have done myself as well, and I don't know if that's something that I'm gonna do in the future, I don't know. I, I don't even bother with deities most of the time. I mean, if 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 the if the character in my game really wants like you know hardcore to be a hardcore religious fanatic, um, then yeah, all the more power to him. But for the most part, I prefer not to deal with gods. They've all got superiority complexes. They're annoying to talk to. <laughs> uh, yeah, and coyote. I can see coyote. That. 
Coyote was great. But I can see, in a game that's supposed to be about the players, having really active gods makes it seem kind of futile. Yeah, yeah it's like, why why even do this? We're, we're, we're always going to be not the best. Well, I think it's not necessarily always about being the best, but you want to at least have some kind of influence. Yeah. And in a world with, like, active, all-powerful gods, you're always going to feel like, well, I did this thing, but this god could cough and undo everything I did. Mm-hmm. One thing that, yeah. like, I kind of got around that was I had the gods be active, but you guys had to do all the work. <laughs> and well, they, then, had their, they had their own shit to deal with. Yeah. You, uh, I remember, like, you were waiting for something to happen. Oh, and magic got restored. You're, like, waiting. And there was, like, this three-minute silence where everyone was just, like, expectantly, like, well, like, I... <laughs> What, what Waiting for, like, the gods who have enlisted us to do this task to come and congratulate us. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah nothing happened. Mm-hmm. So we're like, well, what do we do now? <laughs> carry on with life, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I, I will say that, like, you can, of course, bring in real, real world deities. And the standard D&D books give uh, a, a fair pantheon. Like, the Greyhawk pantheon has become kind of, you know, you have Kord and Bakob and uh, Vecna and all of that. And you actually had a failed kind of experiment with that by bringing in uh, the Catholic Church. Yeah, and that did not go that well. Yeah, and I don't think the Catholic Church belongs in fantasy no. D&D style, where there are definitely other gods. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm definitely gonna go. I I like the paradigm of hero worship being a thing, but yeah. I, and and like some kind of personified. Huh, that's an interesting thought. What? Like uh, all of the characters from that who have become like the gods of Fillmore now. They all really represented uh various aspects or or various like oh god, I can't remember the word. Um, tropes. Not tropes. Uh concepts. Yeah. Like you know like Coyote was was literally trickter, trickery and laughter and and stuff like that and like uh Apollo was literally like mm-hmm. law and justice and blah, blah blah and stuff like that. Like yeah. I think there's something to be said that like like Alex could be trickery and, and and secrets and stuff like that. And, and storytelling. And storytelling. And then yeah. you have, like, Niam, who is, like, magic and secrets and, and like, knowledge. Then you have Alistair, who is, like, uh, courage and um, daring and stuff like that. Like, I think maybe, like, those concepts that were, in it, like, the true source of the deity's power, they were intrinsically the deities themselves, taking these new forms and personalities in the forms of these legendary heroes. I'm actually going to read from something. Okay. In the webcomic Gunner Creek Court, hmm. we're in a chapter where the god Coyote is actually explaining his own origins. Hmm. So here is what Coyote says. A man is in the desert. He sees a coyote waiting for him to die so that it may feast on his flesh. Boo-hoo, he says. Soon I will be in the belly of the coyote, so that may run and laugh another day. What is the power that drives this creature, and why was this cruel fate decided for me? He does not see an animal looking for a meal. He sees the power of a god behind it, a power that has bested him. This is the curse of man. He is forever deceived by his mind. It causes him to not see a stone when it is just a stone. Instead, his diseased eyes sees a weapon or a symbol, the shape of a woman, a spark of inspiration. The curse causes man to stumble through this world forever asking questions. What is this? What is that? Why is this? And where he does not find an answer, he places one there himself. He sees a mountain crumble and says, only a god can do this. And so I am born. Huh. Interesting. (laughs) So I think maybe the gods are these concepts, but the god figures themselves are shaped by people's perceptions and their faiths. I like that. I like that a lot. And I think that does play in with my idea. Where, like, like Alex has 
in part of her personality is this deception and and stealth and storytelling mm-hmm. and kind of like uh yearning for something more and maybe those concepts like those deified concepts coalesced into her yeah like they think you were so associated with these heroes that these concepts sort of came to be represented by them in a way that is sort of mythical and eventually actual yeah in, in some kind of sense if I if I remember correctly, Crispy, you'd actually done something similar to that when you were talking about the deities in your world. When, yeah, when yeah, it was, they were when, literally concepts. You could not kill a god because to do so would to be killing that thing. Like if you wanted to kill the god of the sun, you would literally have to kill that god and kill the sun. If you yeah. wanted to kill the god of fire, you would have to eliminate fire. All fire yeah. from the universe permanently. Yeah. Yeah, that was a thing that I I had done because I I personally don't like the idea of like gods having hit points. So that's gods. Yeah, that's gods. Yeah. I think we went pretty deep into that. We did, yeah. I, I it's it's an interesting discussion and mm-hmm. I think there's probably still more to say about it. Yeah, we should probably have an episode about deities. Yeah. But probably pretty far down the line so we don't retread too much of what we said. Yeah. yeah. Um now, going going back to uh technology level, sorry, this is something I was that just did. about to do that. No, too. it's okay. This is a world building episode. Yeah. Of these course. are parts of building worlds. Of course. And a technology level is, is a big thing for me. Like you guys were saying, uh like having so- someone who like played played in chain and swords and bows in the same world with you know widespread firearms and steam engines and shit like that. I, I don't know. I I don't know where I was going with that. I don't know. I, I, it brings me up with uh in my world, halflings invented guns and they're like a closely guarded secret. Yeah. And that's also fueled by a logical thing of halflings being very tiny, and they also share lands that border with uh, ogres, who are very big, and halflings can't kill, so they invented ballistic weapons to shoot the ogres and kill them. Halflings and that, are basically and, all and, cowboys. And that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. I, I, I see uh, a lot of things with the technology level. Uh, firearms are, are a particular uh, focus for me, but I think that's for another time. But <laughs> I gotta, that is that is another episode in itself. I have a lot to say about firearms. Yeah. But um, it's just that yeah, look, I, I look at things like the technology and magic existing in the same world. It, it, with like the Rutgers, game, Rut, Rutgers Grimm game, I can speak English, I swear. Um, yeah, if, if, that, that, that seems to be played without, you know, just by hand-waving the logic away. But if you really do look at things logically, it, I mean, technology and magic probably shouldn't exist in the same world together. Well, and I think uh, the logic aspect also has a lot of to do with the tone of the game. Because Rutgers Grimm is pretty silly, actually. It is, yeah. Like, uh, uh, Rutgers Grimm's arch nemesis, Baron Felnaferos the Necromancer, is also the <laughs> publisher of his books. <laughs> So, and like, whenever they fan. see each other, they briefly discuss business and then declare that they're going to defeat them once and for all. Yeah. It's like, they have this really weird relationship that could not exist in anything that was going to be serious or logical. Yeah, and, like, yeah, Rutgers Grimm to me is, is just with the silly game. a there's lot of fun. There's nothing wrong with fun. the silly game. Silly has its place. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I will say for, uh, like, there's a quote that any any high technology eventually becomes indistinguishable from magic. So and like any significant or sufficiently advanced magic is indistinguishable from technology. Yeah, technology and magic are essentially the same things to an extent. Yeah, technology is basically just real-world wizardry. Yeah, it's where people who study the laws of the world learn how to manipulate it in these fantastical ways. And and yeah. that's in our case, a it's physics. But but with a with a world that has um that where where magic is uh well hell where magic exists at all, you technology or um technological growth would cease 
Well, that's not true because, like, and the example of this is Shadowrun. Like, Shadowrun, you have wizards. Shadowrun, you have, like, hackers. Technology is still advancing, but they're also blended together. Like, you have techno mages as well. I don't know. I, 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 to be honest, I've never played Shadowrun. So, I, I'm, I mean, is that something where magic was always prevalent in the world? And No, and Shadowrun magic came back. Magic came back to and the that, world. And that's, and, and there's the thing. If magic had never, if, if magic was never, or magic had always been in the world, had never left, had never disappeared, technolog- technological advance would have stopped. Hmm. Because, because I can with- see that being a thing, but I don't know if it's necessarily the rule. I'm pretty sure technology can still advance in parallel with magic, because the idea behind technology is to make uh, these sort of conveniences accessible to the common person. Like, you don't have to be a wizard to have an iPhone. And it's no. just you might have advanced technology that's magic-powered. Well, well yes, but then th- 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 that's the thing. You're never, you're never going to find, um, like, some, like, Again, okay, the only technological advancements that are going to be made is in um, changing magic to work somewhat differently. It's all still going to be based around magic. Well, well, like, I I see your point, but on the other side of that coin, like, I've also seen magic supplementing technology. Like, yeah, yeah, it's still magic-based, but there's still got to be some sort of... Magic becomes technology. Yeah, it's like, where do you draw the line between what counts as technology and what doesn't? Yeah. If you're considering technology something that excludes magic completely, like uh, electromagnetism and physics and such, then, yeah, in a world with magic, technology that excludes magic is not going to exist, especially if magic can be reliable. Yeah, but at the yeah, same time, but, but, there's Jack Vance, who, like, there's magic, but then there's also math, which is its own form of magic in the Dying Earth series. Well, yeah, but um, but what I'm getting at is uh, you look at things that, like, modern conveniences or just modern, any kind of modern technology wouldn't, would never have come into being. And I will say, like, uh, Crispy's use of uh, halflings coming up with ballistic weapons t- in order to fight the giants, that's probably the one of the only good reasons I've ever seen for firearms existing in the fantasy campaign ever because with well, uh, ma- with magic and with magical weaponry firearms probably would never have come into being well period. here's the thing is uh unless you can make some kind of magic wand that anybody can use i think firearms would come into existence because yeah, the like reason the firearms became so popular is because they required not so much training for a lot of return in the world that has fireballs sure fi- uh, a gun is not going to compare to a magic missile or something but you can't train a commoner to do a magic missile without sending him off to this academy and pouring all these resources into it whereas a gun you can you can mass produce you put, them you can put it in his hand say point it that way and pull the trigger, pull the trigger. yeah like well but you're uh, thinking of specific types of firearms as well the um firearms went through a lot of growth and expansion even just from their roots and if you look at some of the earliest firearms were um chinese there were cannons or uh, bombs and cannons and those exist in a DD world like that's an assumed thing within DD. are cannons and catapults catapults yes cannons no, no i have um, i've usually seen powder weaponry uh including all all uh powder weaponry cannons and uh handheld firearms well, like, I will say, like, old school D&D, they had ship-based combat, and, like, cannons were a thing, as were, like, trebuchets and stuff like that. But, like, muskets weren't a thing. I think, yeah. in terms of, a, in a world of magic, firearms not appearing, I don't think firearms would appear, but I think some kind of magic-empowered, like, weapon 
that can be used by somebody who can receive very little training on how to use it and maintain it. I believe I believe would, you would, would you would exist. I believe you created a magic guide at one point that was essentially a crossbow that could that would fire a spell out of a wand. Yeah, and I'm not the first person to come out with that. It turns out, ah. but I think yeah. magic would develop in the direction of uh, whoever can make magic most accessible to their common foot soldiers would be the victor mm-hmm. and would determine the development of this technology. It's like uh, the bow to like the English longbow to the crossbow. To... Yeah, like the longbow used by a trained longbowman is better, but like the effort it takes to train one longbowman, you could train ten crossbowmen. Mm-hmm. And 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 with the for and for the uh, for the most part, you wouldn't be using you know marksmen in in actual war. You would be using uh, volley tactics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like you could have for the resources and time it takes to train one wizard, you could have like a hundred foot soldiers probably. With because an arc, magic, with arquebuses. as a rule, is pretty complicated. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah, but what I'm saying though is, is peop- the um, the way the technological advancement would have gone would have been to make magic combat more uh more accessible than to making fu- to making arms that would kill. Because the te- yeah, the, te- that's, the, te- that's the what I said. Like the, the, the research that would go into like uh working on these firearms and making them more accessible would would be probably on par with with making magic more accessible. But mm, I disagree. Like, you have to individually train wizards. Like, a team of guys can make guns better. And then say, hey, point this over there and pull the trigger. Yeah, but uh, I'm not talking about just, like, you're, you're, I mean, that's assuming that you have a, you know, the idea for the the firearm in mind. I'm saying the the concept of the firearm never would have come out at all. See, I disagree. Like, and part of that is because, like, your fantasy world doesn't have to be dictated by actual real-world history. Like, I think, like, if there's, like, a, uh, and, and that's part of my thing with dwarves and elves, is, like, dwarves became magic-resistant because they could just build them magic-resistant in mass numbers, whereas, like, the elves didn't have, like, the the uh, ability to train a bunch of wizards. Like, there was not enough time to train a bunch of wizards, whereas these dwarves were mass-produced. It's like, say you have a, a, a mageocracy, a, a, like, a warrior race of, or a warrior country of mages, and, like, they're just going all over the continent and just, like, conquering shit. And so, like, one country is like, alright, well, we have, like, this powder technology, and it's really devastating but it's not really controlled. Let's f- let's put our best and brightest minds on a way to control these this ballistic powder. And yeah, then they come like, up with guns. In and a world like- that has magic, a nation might not necessarily discover magic in the ways that certain societies never discovered certain technologies. Mm-hmm. Like, it, magic, I, I, if it exists, does not necessarily have to be something that everybody always discovers. It's like there are third world control. countries that don't have landlines because they got to the phone technology when it was all cellular. So they just developed cellular towers. That's true. Like, they I, I, skipped I, I, it entirely. And they probably yeah, also I, skipped, like, radio. Yeah, I, I, I just think, as I said, with, um, the, again, the, the firearms debate is, is, is for, is, again, for another episode. I just... I, I just don't believe that powder At weapons this point, would I'm not come sure to it is. Yeah, no, I think, it, like... no, no, it is. Okay. I have a lot more to say, trust me. But right. I, I just think that, I mean, that, that that kind of thing, things you have to take into account for when you're building your world. If you're going to, like, have a logical world and try to have your logic behind it, yeah, these are things you should probably be able to think about and explain. Yeah, and I think, like, my my example that I brought up is, is a logical thing. Like, we don't have magic, but we have, like, black powder that we use for mining. And, oh, no the magic guys are coming and we've heard stories of them like conjuring phantasmal dragons and taking people out with 
giant fireballs. So let's take this resource that we have and maybe see if we can weaponize that. Like that's. I think that'll be kind of interesting. Yeah. A, a world where only certain nations have developed magic. Maybe like one nation has only divine magic. Maybe okay. they don't. They have a cultural taboo against using arcane magic and such. And wizards are hunted down as heretics. Yeah. It's entirely possible. That's that's actually really interesting. Yeah. So and then you have another world which could potentially develop this kind of technology and never have a need for it. And by the time they discover magic is a thing, their mundane kind of technology has already progressed to the point where it doesn't overtake everything they've already done. So they might have technology that they now enhance with magic if they discover it and embrace it, but their technology is built on the foundation that assumed that they didn't have access to it. Yeah, like uh, like Shadowrun. Like, you have the internet, and then you got magic after the internet. Mm-hmm. So now, like... There are magical ways to influence, like, the net and to, like, jack in or control signals wirelessly and stuff like that. Like, they have their techno mages. So, uh, a world with differing levels of technology by region would be an interesting one. A world by... Yeah, that, that would, would be, be really interesting. I would I would play in that world. It sounds really cool. Not to mention the fact that culture plays a part in world building as well. Societies don't always behave in a way that, quote-unquote, makes sense. I was going to say that... Uh, uh, there's a, an interesting book on this that people should read called Jun- Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, which uh, dictates that uh, it, it basically it's an, a book on anthropology and biology uh, that basically posits that the real world cultures, it, it, I mean, it's based in our world, um, their geographical region helped to uh, helped to define when they will get certain technologies, how resistant they would be to disease and how like easily they would like develop advanced technologies. Yeah, if you're going to build a world that makes sense, you should probably read that. Yeah, it's it's a really good book. It's very dry, though. So, I mean, but if you're the kind of person who wants to build a world that makes sense, you're probably super boring. I'm just <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. I am kidding. If you don't think that you're boring, write us an email at articlewits at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, like, uh, an interesting game that, uh, like, speaking of real-world things, an interesting thing that you could, uh, use to kind of help build your campaign world, especially collaboratively with your players, is a game called Dawn of Worlds. Yeah, it's actually, uh, you can get it for free. It's just a multiple-page document. If you print it out, it'll be like a little packet at most. It's like 10 pages, 14 pages, something like that. Yeah, it's basically a game where you and your friends take turns gradually building up a world. Mm-hmm. You start out kind of making the map and the geography of it. Then, you cr- like the next phase, you start to create races. And then you start to build societies. And then you make them interact with each other. And through the gameplay, you end up getting like this world with this history and like all these landmarks and these unique races and such that you all have a stake in and you all understand and, yeah. uh, we, we had done this at one point um, the, the three of us with uh, friend Joe and I believe Julie had a um, was in the la- latter half of it yeah we, 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 we created the world and it's actually a, at least part of the the information we put down is what I use in in my fantasy worlds yeah and like we decided on some ground rules we house ruled in that like we were each a different god with a different aspect and so it would cost less of our influence to do stuff relating to our domains mm-hmm. which made things interesting like I was at innovation and technology God, I like a I god was... of ideas and ingenuity. I think I was nature. Yeah, you were yeah, a nature you know, god. Daniel was the god of magic, and Joe was... was the god of darkness, madness, and corruption. That's Joe, though, in a nutshell. Yeah, like, if there's all... any way that I could describe Joe... And he also Joe... played one in the game. Yeah, if there's any way that I can, like, uh, explain Joe to anyone, I'll be like, yeah, he's like a, he's like a god of, like, madness, <laughs> chaos, and destruction. It's the best way to explain Joe yeah. to everyone. And we actually decided on some in- an interesting ground rule, no humans. Yeah, that was that was something that I, that I yeah that was, I, I really enjoyed that 
We probably could have made it even better by saying no traditional fantasy races, but that was the thing. He's like, yeah, no humans. I, I think it would be interesting to just make a geography and not put humans in, like if we played again. Like, I think that would be an interesting ground rule. And then you could plop in whatever races you want. I always uh, thought a, a world that has only monster races would be interesting, hmm. where you don't have human elves, dwarves, gnomes, halflings. You only have orcs, kobolds, uh, hobgoblins, gnolls. Ah, goblins. Tim, that that reminds me. Oh. Our campaign setting, the Sky oh. World. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh man. We need oh, to man. do something. Yeah, me with and that. Crispy came up with this really cool campaign world that uh, we never really got to take anywhere. We should Whereas, write that thing. We it's really basically should. a fantastical world that was divided into two kind of layers. Where you had a sky world, which was kind of like all made up of floating islands and like rotating around a sphere together with like these vast oceans of clouds. And underneath you had like the underworld that was all horrible like abomination monsters and like and like a thick jungles full of terrifying creatures and no civilization whatsoever. So like, Final Fantasy 13? I haven't. Played. I don't know. I've not yeah, played dude, that. I, I don't play Final Fantasy. Games. I actually got the idea from the Sonic the Hedgehog animated OVA video. Yeah, and then we like threw in a lot of Miyazaki stuff. Yeah, hmm. we we were actually thinking like our prototype name for it was like Studio Ghibli World or something. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like it was like equal parts like Princess Mononoke on the bottom, Castle in the Sky on the top. Kinda. Castle in the Sky meets like Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah. And if you don't know what either of those or uh, any of those movies are, like go buy them now and watch them because yeah, watch them. You are missing out if you do not know about these. And things. if you if you disagree with me, don't write into criticalwits at gmail dot com because I will trash your email. <laughs> We're not even yeah. going to get a chance to see it. He'll see it and delete it. And like, oh, we didn't get any feedback. Crispy will be like, nope. <laughs> nope. Yeah. Like, ah, uh, that was a really good world. Because like, it it, it really, it was for D&D, but it, it really did not do a lot of the D&D stuff. It was, it was actually antithetical to... Yeah, it had no dwarves and elves and things. It had humans. But I also took the idea from a game, Legend of Mana, that humans could be shaped by their experiences and personalities and desires to take on sort of beast-like qualities. Mm -hmm. And some would actually be animals, like animal people. Yeah. Like, you would have, like, a little shopkeep who's a frog, basically. Or, uh, and, like, you, you had, like, cool, like, little mystical things, like, uh, the dragon, who was basically, like, this junk monster, this ancient junk monster that, like, oh, yeah, like absorbed the a bunch discarded of discarded technology. Yeah. Yeah, there's basically, uh, items of sentimental value that were, like, lost, or, like, have went missing or have been discarded. They basically would have been imbued by their previous owners with a kind of almost a soul or a will, and they would eventually kind of coalesce out of other inert junk into these beings and like they would have an item of some sentimental value like a brooch or a, a teacup or something that meant something to somebody and they imbued it with a soul and that would be the core of their whole junk being yeah. and that was basically them so if you took if you found the item in that whole junk core that was them and you took it out the rest of it would fall to pieces yeah that was a really interesting world i i I really, we should start doing something with that again. Yeah, like, I'm starting to get into publishing RPG products. Yeah. Like, Dude, I have paper minis up for sale. Let's do this. Yeah, I, yeah, I we love should do this something idea. with that. Yeah. We can write some articles, even. Yeah. Um, sorry, that that was led in from something else that we were talking about. Yeah. Sorry, Daniel, that was me and Crispy. Yeah. I wasn't the one talking at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you didn't get to, because we were talking about something we came up independently oh, of you. Son. I'm trying to think of what well, that well, thing was. What I was saying, though, was. like, with Final Fantasy XIII, that 
you pretty much described, at least in part, the world that Final Fantasy XIII takes place in. Yeah, well, that Where, was not on purpose. Yeah. Huh. So, you, it really is not that. I believe you. I wasn't <laughs> accusing you. Oh, I'm not being defensive. I'm just saying... Oh, should have probably have been done before. Yeah, like, like it I, has. I, I, I took the idea from somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, trying to think. Dawn of Worlds. That's what we were talking about. Yeah, yeah Dawn, of Dawn of Worlds. Yes. Okay. So Dawn of Worlds. Good game. Free. I believe it's a Google Doc, so you can just download it. And it's it. Dawn D A W N, not Dawn like a mafia Dawn. You're not the Dawn of Worlds. <laughs> Anyways, um, no, it, it, um, Dawn of Worlds is a lot of fun. I just I wish that we'd been able to do something with the world that we created the th- the four of us just because as soon as we finish the Donald Worlds game it's like hey okay let's you know make a let's do a campaign and all three of the others like you you guys and Joe all went yeah no we really don't feel like it well like that's because I already have my own campaign world that- yeah and like uh, well I, it, it was be- not anything like we didn't like the world or what we made it's just like circumstance really that determined that yeah like well, yeah I, but it, but I'd say, like, everybody I everybody already had their own stuff going on well I hadn't I, and I was offering to run the game, and all three of you went. No, we're, we really don't feel like playing it. Don't really remember too well. Yeah, I don't. Well, this is that. also this is also the time that Crispy really was really burnt out on on uh, Pathfinder. Yeah, that was. Yeah. I still so, like I I like playing Pathfinder. I don't know if I'll run it though. I don't really like running Pathfinder that much either. Like I like playing Pathfinder. It's just yeah. that's what the game is. Yeah, you like, you like to play it, but running it's a little bit of a hassle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's oh, well. it's just it takes like a lot of you. You have to know the rules to an extent. It's uh, I don't know. I, I feel like I can't fudge as well with with Pathfinder, but that's a different that's a different episode. Yeah. Um, so we got to talk about Dawn of Worlds. That's good. Yeah. And that uh, that weird whimsical fantasy world we put together. Yeah. Like, why don't we do anything with that? I don't know. I was actually kind of thinking about that the other day. Huh. Yeah, I had forgotten all about it until now. Yeah. And I think what brought it up was actually the world tree. Because in our Dawn of Worlds game, I was the god of nature. And I made this world tree and, like, it, uh, like elves and stuff like that. And, like, Daniel made his own elves and stuff like that. But no, after my elves. Mm, I could have swore yeah, I Yeah, that's how it went. Daniel made elves and you made an offshoot. Oh, okay. Because there are rules for that of making sub races. Yeah. But uh, after and, a while, and Daniel took some of my kobolds. Did I? Oh, yeah, that's right. A, the, your, kobolds, your kobolds were the industrious, and I turned them to magic. Yeah, you, you made a magic offshoot of them. Yeah, I uh, I put robots in the game. There were robots. <laughs> I made were, a race yeah. of robots. But I had betrayed you guys since we were all playing against Joe, and I killed the world tree and corrupted the earth. Well, <laughs> me and Joe did that. Yeah, which I thought was really interesting. Like, I I really like uh, Dawn of Worlds. If you it, you have to put in some kind of like cataclysm event, <laughs> and like that's also part of like my defining. Like, I like grimdark stuff. I I like old D and D because it's grimdark. I play games kind of grimdark. They're lighthearted and whimsical at some points, but they're also very grimdark when you scratch underneath the surface. Come and, to the school with the people in the walls. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> like. Man, it was all Lovecraft and shit. But, uh, so I, I like playing Grimdark stuff, and, uh, I, my world is more or less, like, my own personal world is defined by cataclysms. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, but that's not how you have to do it. No, it's not. Uh, you no, can, no. you can base your world on, like, striving. I, I don't, uh, like, strive. Or base your world on, like, I think that's cool. Let's put that in there. Yeah. Which like, is at the end of the day, anybody who built a world, that's what they're doing. Yeah, it's just I think this is cool. Bam, here we go. But uh I don't know, I think I think we're uh we're about done, right? Yeah, yeah I, I think, think so. so. Yeah. Um final thoughts, world building, pretty cool. <laughs> it's my favorite part of the D and D experience. I think it's not something you should stress out about as much. 
If you're the kind of person who has to have it all make sense and things like that, good on you. And I think I would really like to play in a game that is really defined by uh, realistic and logical progressions of societies and such. But I've found that playing things fast and loose can achieve a similar effect with a lot less work, and keeping things flexible is extremely important, as well as allowing players to contribute to your world in a meaningful way. And that's me. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I just sort of have... summed up everything we came to, all the conclusions we came to. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, it, my final thoughts everyone's going to play their their game differently everyone's going to pl- uh, every gm is going to plan their world differently um and yeah, like like Tim said, if you if you're the type of person who like has to you know bring everything down to a T and everything works you know everything works a certain way because you know for a specific reason and everything's logical, cool. I would love to play in your game. I'm not gonna do that just because that's more than I am willing to do. And I really do prefer to make sandboxy games where the players dictate what comes up and I create things on the fly for what my players do. But that's not to say that my way is any better than yours. Um, I would love to play in your game. It's to each their own. Yeah. Uh, that'll be it for us. If you have any particular tips or ways that you world build, write us an email at criticalwits at gmail.com. Or- and I would also like to hear if you do something in your world that's really unique, because we would love to steal your ideas. Exactly. For our own games. And feel free to steal our ideas for yours. Definitely. Except, Except if you want to have a floating sky world or weaponized dwarves, go for it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, write us an email, criticalwits at gmail.com, or leave us a comment on our website, criticalwits.info, uh, or, you know, Talk write us, us in Facebook. Facebook or Twitter, uh, Critical if, Wits Podcast. If it has Critical and, Wits on it and you post words there, we will see them. We will read them and we will respond to you uh, either directly or we'll save it for uh, our next mailbag episode. So, that'll be it for us. Uh, for the Critical Wits Podcast, I've been Crispy. I have been and still am Tim. And I'm Odenton, or more colloquially, Daniel. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye, everybody. Good night. Critical Wits is Chris Stockett, Tim Jenkins, and Daniel Cabral. Visit our website at criticalwits.info or post a comment on our forums at osrgaming.org. You can find us on iTunes under Critical Wits or like us on Facebook at Critical Wits Podcasts. Or you can follow us on Twitter at criticalwits underscore PC. We look forward to hearing from you.